Welcome to the Highland Good Food Podcast. I'm Emma and this is our last episode of Season 1. Throughout this season we have discussed a wide range of topics from community growing to intertidal regeneration and from the opportunities for new ancient farmers to consumer food stories from all corners of the Highlands. We have met some amazing thinkers and doers, all with an abundance of energy and enthusiasm. I hope this podcast inspires you to believe that it is possible to have a local sustainable food system here in the Highlands. A food system that is better for the planet, better for people and better for our producers. We can all make a difference as citizens and communities. And one of the clearest messages I've received over this last few months is everyone's desire to be more connected. From consumer and farmer relationships to us all being more connected to the soil and nature realising we are all part of the same system and if one part is ill, neglected or struggling then the whole system is impacted. The only way to thrive is together. To support this though we also need policy and mechanisms in place that make doing the right thing possible and encouraged. To discuss this further I'm joined today by Pete Ritchie who is Executive Director of Nourish Scotland and an organic farmer at Whitmuir in the Scottish Borders. So welcome Pete. I'd like to start off by talking about the farming for 1.5 inquiry in its recent report and as a panel member you must have been on an incredibly interesting journey this year working with a wide range of stakeholders to put together this really quite impressive report that will hopefully be the catalyst for transformation that the system needs. So could you remind us all why this report is of paramount importance and summarise its main conclusions? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the reason this report matters for us and the reason we chose to set up the inquiry with the NFUS was because we can't make progress on this by one lot of people lobbing things over the wall at the other lot of people. You know, farmers have felt on the defensive about climate change and, you know, is it their cows and their sheep that are mainly responsible for climate change? Are they the villains of the peace? And what do people expect them to do? And at the same time, the environmentalists have been saying, we really, really need change in food and farming policy because we're not going to get to net zero unless we change food and farming. And the scientists have been saying, look, it's pretty clear that you know, greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture are a significant part of the picture. And we know lots of things that can happen to reduce those emissions, but in quite a lot of cases, farmers aren't taking them up. So what's that about? What's happening here? So the idea of the inquiry was to bring all those people together and say, look, we don't start off agreeing on everything, but can we actually find a way forward? And we were just delighted to have six family farmers on the inquiry, people who actually make their living out of every day going out and working with animals, working with crops, working with soils. And actually, that's what they do. So having them on the panel made all the difference. Then we were joined by world-leading scientists who, you know, we had access to the most contemporary work on these issues in the world. And we were delighted to get witnesses to come to speak to us who could present cutting edge unpublished research to us to say this is the way things are going. And we had some great environmentalists on the panel and WWF commissioned a report, which is hugely helpful in framing our thinking. So in terms of conclusions, we've done some different things here. I mean, the first and most important thing is about the need for cultural change. This is not about one farmer doing a particularly good job or everybody saying, aren't they doing great? It's about changing a whole sector and a whole system. And it's about helping farmers, investing in the change, not simply saying, oh, look, you know, you can do it on your own. Most farms, even if they control a lot of land, are very small businesses. And a lot of us don't have huge capital resources we can invest in the change. We do need to have help with those investments 
and we need to get the market signals to show that if we're producing higher value food, then you know we're going to be able to sell it. And we need a clear policy on land use so that we can, as far as possible, integrate farming with more trees, more hedges. The report looked quite a lot at agroforestry as part of the way forward. But what we don't want is a situation where land use is just decided by the market and by the grants and by the incentives. And we end up with a pattern of land use, which really doesn't help farmers, doesn't help communities, doesn't help the planet. So this is all about an integrated approach. We've come up with a whole bunch of principles that I think underpin the change. But what we've tried to say is that the change is it's a huge transformation. We've likened it to the change from horses to tractors because it's about rethinking what are we trying to do with food and farming and moving, protecting nature and tackling climate change to the heart of what we're doing in farming, you know, not as something we do after we've done everything else. So I think that's been the most important change and everybody's on board with that. The NFES have been hugely supportive in the process and really got behind the inquiry. So there's lots of technical measures, specific measures on nitrogen we're proposing in line with the new nitrogen budget. We've also looked at tackling the gases separately and setting specific caps for methane and for nitrous oxide and introducing greenhouse gas mitigation contracts in the second stage of the process so that farmers are actually supported to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And we think all farms can do this. For some farms, the most sensible thing is actually to reduce their livestock, to reduce their inputs, um, maybe to put some of their ground into trees, but certainly to stop buying in feed. And the economics show that if you can reduce inputs, but not reduce your output as much, you can make more money, you know, and you can also have much less impact on the planet. There's a lot we can do through the basics of animal health and welfare that we're not doing sensibly at the moment. We can do an awful lot just by using, you know, manure and slurry more effectively, putting it on in better ways and putting it on when it's needed and measuring when it's needed, when it's not needed. You know, some of this is really old stuff we've known about for a long time. But I think some of the newer stuff about the shift towards agroforestry, great investment in organics, and a greater joined up approach, I think, with the regional land use partnerships and with essentially government and industry and research working together on it. But we've seen a pathway to not take all the emissions out of agriculture, but to reduce them to a level where we don't have to use all our land use change just to offset the emissions from agriculture. We can reduce the emissions from agriculture in the first place, have some land use change, integrate that land use change with production, like with agroforestry, with intercropping, with better ways of managing soil, with getting carbon back into soil, so that we have capacity in the system to use more land use change to offset either our emissions in Scotland or other countries' emissions, but contribute to Scotland being a global citizen, not just looking after what we can do here. So lots of things in the report. We've not quite finished it yet. We're backfilling with quite a lot more data and the final report will be out at the end of February. But we hope you've done enough to move the conversation on a little bit. And most importantly, as I said at the beginning, produce a consensus on the way forward, because this can't be farmers against environmentalists anymore. It's much too important for that. That's obviously one of the really great benefits of it, that this is everybody coming together, working together, which is incredibly positive and, and encouraging for us all. So you've got the final report coming out in February, but what do you see as the first and next step after February? What could you see happening with this? Well, the immediate proposal we've made is for a high-level transformation steering group to be set up by government with a budget, with a mandate, with clear political leadership to say, over the next 10 years, we need to do a huge amount of heavy lifting on this. 
one farmer on the panel said, we've got a year to get everyone on board and we've got 10 years to deliver. Because this isn't about 2050, this is about between now and 2030, really making a significant bend in the way we do things. So we see that steering group's important and that steering group's got to be able to pull together what we're doing about farm support mechanisms, what we're doing about organics, what we're doing in research terms. And another really important conclusion of the report was that the advisory services need much more investment and they have to be fit for purpose. You know, we don't have as big an investment as we need, but also we haven't really focused the advisory service on climate and nature. So that might mean retraining advisors, bringing new advisors in, using some farmers as advisors. We've got some amazing farmers out there who are very convincing advocates for change. And seeing advice and training and support as integral to the change process, because some farmers can do this on their own. You know, we have some pioneers who've gone out, changed what they do, and have become real experts in low carbon farming. But for a lot of us, you know, there's a lot we need to learn and we need our hands held. And some of that's about money to invest, but a lot of it actually is about feeling part of the change and having the know-how and having the advice and having the support and having the encouragement to make the changes on our own farms. Yeah. Do you think this year, because, well, next year, sorry, because we have the Scottish elections, that's actually an opportunity to get this on the agenda? I hope it will be a big part of the conversation in the run-up to the elections. Obviously, with Brexit, with the pandemic, there are so many big things to talk about. But climate change with COP26 coming up is going to be important. Scotland signed up to a major contribution on the biodiversity COP. All these things come together in the food system. So keeping pushing how we do food, how we do farming up the top of the agenda, that's, that's what we exist for. But I just want to tell you a little story about the Farming 1.5 report. At the weekend, my neighbour was across because we're looking at a drain we need to fix. And we were talking about we're maybe going to put, well, about a third of our farm into broadleaf trees, the higher bit of the farm that's, you know, we get a lot of runoff into the drain and that's causing flooding further down the farm. Some of it's going into his field, which he's not happy about. And they cut down a big forest at the top of the hill a couple of years back, which isn't helping either. So we're talking about this and he says, yeah, but you can't eat trees. And we had a great conversation about, you know, cows eat grass. You know, we shouldn't be bringing in soya to feed livestock. We should be living for our own resources. We talked about less and better meat. We talked about all of these things. And it was just great to be able to say, I'm going to drop you off a copy of this report because this is written with farmers, for farmers. It's not saying we need to get rid of all meat. It's not saying we need to get rid of all cows. It's saying if we do this well, there's room for some cows, there's room for some sheep. Their job is to eat up grass that we can't eat. And if we can stick them in under the trees so they can get shade and shelter and they can browse the trees and we can lock up carbon at the same time, really what is not to like. And so I think it was great. It's probably the first time I've been able to talk to my neighbor about farming and climate change. He's not organic, we are, without it being like, well, you're on one side and I'm on the other. We're on the same side, it was great. That story sort of summarises what the whole process of the report has been. It's about bringing people together, isn't it? So that's a really positive story to share. You mentioned there about COP26, which is obviously next year in November. This surely is a fantastic opportunity for Scotland and will be on the world stage. How do you think we can best prepare for this? With humility, I think is the first thing. You know, it is such a privilege to be hosting this global gathering. The most important gathering since Paris, without a doubt. And we are doing some great things in Scotland. Make no mistake, we have great climate 
ambitions and we are making progress in some key areas really well. But we also have to recognize that we're not the top of the tree when it comes to transport. We're doing some great things with the hydrogen grid. That's going to be a world first. You know, we have some fantastic work on offshore wind. You know, we have a lot to be proud of, but it's really important at the same time we recognize what everybody else is doing in the world and where other people are ahead of us and what we have to learn from other people. And above all, you know, this isn't about who's world leading, who's top, who's best. This is about building a sense that, yes, we can, building a sense that tackling climate change and the nature emergency isn't just about our survival. It's about thriving. It's about justice. It's about creating a world that we can turn the TV on, we can turn the radio on and not endlessly hear about how we're destroying everything, you know, to create a world which is actually heading in the right direction where we're actually in right relationship with nature, with the planet. You know, there's a huge price here and it's technically achievable. It's economically achievable. The question is, is it politically achievable? Because it means some of us giving up some of our power, some of our privilege to make changes that work for everybody. And it's about enough of us thinking that the people who come after us, the future generations, our children, our grandchildren, deserve our care and attention they deserve our love they deserve our support and that if we build things now that are fit for the future then they will enjoy them so ultimately it's not about technology it's not about the genius of the engineers who are producing new types of concrete or new types of power storage or new types of motors or you know there's all that genius is needed too but at the end of the day this is about fairness and justice and respect. Those are the values which need to be at the heart of the way we do Glasgow. That's what we need to be doing. That sounds beautiful, Pete. You've been working really hard in Nourish this year on preparing for Glasgow. And we were just speaking earlier about the Climate and Food Glasgow Declaration. Could you tell us a wee bit about that and what your hopes for that are? As you know, food's our thing. And as you know, Scotland's our place. And Scotland doesn't get a seat at the UN. You know, it doesn't get a seat at the COP26 as a, as a member state. But as a sub-national government, it has huge influence over what happens in Scotland. And across the world, sub-national governments of all sorts have huge influence on what happens in their area. So Andhra Pradesh in India is converting the entire state, 50 million people, to organic farming. You know, Copenhagen has done amazing work on organic food in the public kitchen, and that's kick-started a situation in Denmark where 25 to 30% of the food sold is organic. I mean, it's been an extraordinary journey, but that's not just those cities across the world. Cities are investing in short supply chains. They're investing in reducing waste from the food system. San Francisco's got a great composting initiative. You know, Johannesburg's got some brilliant urban farming going on. There's all sorts of things happening in cities and states across the world to really drive change in the food system. And we wanted to get those voices and that message to COP26. So we wanted to say it's not just for member states. This is about all of us. So the Glasgow Declaration, we've had five or six rounds of drafting over the year. We've been working with partners across the world who organise networks of cities to get a declaration which basically says we're signed up to integrated food policies to tackle climate change. We want to see national governments do the same. And we want to see food and the nationally determined contributions going forward. So this declaration is getting launched today. 
It's already been signed by a number of governments across the world and more are coming on the call today to announce their support for the declaration. So there's a huge amount of support for this. And what's important here is that local government can do things. It can do lots of very practical things to change the food system, whether that's Highland Council, whether it's Scottish government, every local authority has levers they can pull here. And most importantly, local authorities are closer to their citizens and they're more trusted by their citizens. And that makes a difference because if you want people to change what they do, then you need to have high levels of trust in government. You know, we've seen that in the pandemic. The greater the trust in government, the more people are willing to do what the government asks them to do. And if we want to change the food system, we have to have governments that people trust to help them change the food system. So that's the declaration. And we're planning for many of those cities to come to the COP. We'll be welcome to the COP. And we'll also be organizing dialogues between those cities and the farmers who serve them. So a network of global dialogues that we're calling the Fork to Farm Dialogues about how cities and farmers can work together to tackle climate change. This is an incredibly positive action that you are taking and I cannot wait to see where it all goes. So 2021 could be a pretty big year, huh? Before we finish off, I think it's almost impossible not to talk about Brexit as we are still unsure what that actually is going to look like, even though we're only a couple of weeks away. So what do you see as the opportunities and also frighteningly the most concerning challenges that we are going to be facing in the imminent future? For Norris, there's no upside to Brexit. I mean, we've tried, we've looked, you know, we've gone behind the sofa, we've lifted the carpet. There's no upside. There's only downside. You know, it's taking us out of the protections and standards which have been built up, you know, with the UK's help over the last 45 years. With the common agricultural policy, sure has many, many flaws. It's a really difficult thing to do to try to make a policy that works for 27 countries. It's been captured by the interests of big farming, absolutely. It's unfair in the way it operates. And we could have done much more in the UK to challenge that unfairness over the years. In a way, we sort of went along with more of it than we should have done. But the fact is that that's hugely outweighed by all the positives that go with a joined up approach in Europe. And it's not just about farm subsidies. It's not just about the single market. It's about being part of a progressive union, which for all its faults and all its flaws has generally been on the side of progress and many of its international dealings actually on the side of equity. There are many things to be proud of in what the EU's delivered and achieved, not least the bringing in of the new member states after the fall of Berlin Wall, the support for democratic institutions, the support for human rights. We're foolish to leave, you know, because it accords so much with the values that we share in Scotland and the UK. We're walking away from something we believe in. Um, but in the short term, the disruption to trade, to food systems, to primary producers, you know, I, I just feel the land producers at the moment must, must be worried sick because their livelihoods depend on not having tariffs in three weeks' time and they have no idea whether they're going to have tariffs or not. So the short-term disruption is very scary. The medium-term loss of influence, loss of connection, loss of relationships is simply diminishes us in the eyes of the world. And Scotland has an opportunity to go back to rejoin that community of nations and to play a small but progressive part in that union. It doesn't mean we'll always agree with everything that the European Union does. 
It doesn't mean that it won't take another round of cap negotiations to make that policy fairer, greener, and more effective. Yeah, it will. There's a trajectory in the EU in terms of climate change, in terms of circular economy, in terms of human rights that we need to be part of. And in the longer term, we have the opportunity to do that. And I hope that in my lifetime, the UK will come to its senses and apply to rejoin. It's a frightening thought, isn't it? So with the climate and environmental crisis, coupled with Brexit, we really are at a point in time that is unprecedented. And I feel like that word's kind of overused, but I can't think of another one that's any better. We've been speaking there about what can happen at government and local government level and at a policy level. But what do you think we can do as individuals at a grassroots level, like we're trying to do here with the Highland Good Food conversation, to help ourselves and to help our communities? Yeah, it's really important not to forget that we can do a huge amount of citizens, you know, and there's some really granular stuff. We had a local project here on the farm where we managed to get food waste reduced by a third in our local villages and our local primary schools. It took a lot of work. It was house to house. It was neighbor to neighbor. It was getting the food waste caddies on the school bus. It was very granular local work. But if every village reduced their food waste by a third, we'd be well on the way to solving some of the core problems of the food system. You know, those things matter. Those ideas and examples can spread. I think we have a huge capacity of citizens to work with our local authorities and to get them interested in this agenda. You know, if local authorities are responsive, but they need citizens to come forward and say, we care about this because people care about here, you know, whether it's increasing food growing, whether it's changing what goes on in the public kitchen, whether it's initiatives to get people eating more veg, you know, whatever it is, if active citizens speak to local authorities in sufficient numbers, and it doesn't take that many people, then policies can change, awareness can change, and practice can change. We can't wait for world leaders to tell national leaders, to tell local leaders, to tell citizens what to do. We also have citizens need to tell local leaders, to tell national leaders, to tell global leaders what to do too. So I think that potential for not just doing things in our backyard, but also raising our voices individually and collectively, that's how this is going to happen. I think that's a really empowering note to end on, Pete. Thanks very much for your time and for sharing your ideas. And I really look forward to welcoming you to our Highland Good Food Conference in January, where we can hear from you again. What a good way to start the new year. I really look forward to doing that. It'll be super to see you then. See you then, Emma. Thanks a lot. 2021 really is shaping up to be a very important, potentially pivotal year in our history, making this conversation and subsequent actions essential. Over this last year, a lot of people have been working hard to create this conversation and to bring people in the Highland food sector together. We have been funded by the Pebble Trust and Transition Black Isle, who have both been incredibly flexible and positive as the conversation has grown with demand and interest. A big shout out to our steering group who have worked together to make this idea a reality. We have our chair, Martin Shering, who is a Pebble Trust trustee and Transition Black Hill director. And we have Dennis Overton, who amongst many roles within the food sector is chairman of the board of Scotland Food and Drink and a farmer on the West Coast. Cole Gordon, who's a young, innovative farmer from Inch and Down Farm in Rossshire. We have Keith Masson from the Highland Council, the climate change manager. And we have Josie Fraser, who's a food enthusiast and activist, as well as a researcher and writer for the Highland Good Food blog. 
and we've got Neil Sutherland who's also a Pebble Trust trustee and he's founder and owner of MACAR, an architect-led eco-design and build organisation in Inverness. Behind the scenes of the podcast we have Rachel Butterworth who is our editor. Also a big thanks goes to Emma Butterworth for the music. So as the end of phase one of this conversation nears, I thank you all for listening, sharing and for joining this amazing movement. We are back in the new year with the Highland Good Food Conference. If you haven't bought your ticket yet, then there is still plenty of time. Go to our website, highlandgoodfood.scot forward slash conference. Everyone here at the Highland Good Food Conversation wishes you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.